Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. Four years ago, René Morales experienced the early symptoms of trigeminal neuralgia. His wife was able to make the diagnosis by googling the symptoms. It was only months later that he was treated with a definitive treatment. Of his experience of healthcare at the time, he says, I had already convinced myself that my my life for as long as I was going to live it was going to be miserable. Had somebody listened to me, had somebody given me hope, I know that I would have pulled out of that depression much sooner than what I did. This is the story of René Morales. René, thank you so much for taking the time to join me in the Health Design Podcast. I'm delighted to be speaking with you today. I want to start with the day that you experienced the symptoms of the condition that you are the champion for. What happened on that day and how did it all unfold from there? So first off, Moyes, thank you very much for this opportunity to share my story with you and those who listen to your podcast. Roughly about four years ago, this month, I noticed this tingling sensation on my forehead. Actually, I first noticed it when I was taking a shower. The water was hitting my, my head, my forehead. I'm bald, so obviously I don't have the cushion of a nice thick head of hair to absorb that, but... I found that as the water was hitting my forehead, I felt this tingling sensation, and it felt unusual. It was almost like a sizzling, dull pain, and I didn't think really too much of it, but it was it was definitely very odd to have that sensation, and I noticed that as I would touch that area, that sensation would, would happen. This was two days before my 50th birthday, and this is why I'm always able to remember this, because... The onset of trigeminal neuralgia seems to happen at age 50. So, uh, you know, for it to happen at this time, I found it very peculiar. And so that's how I first noticed it, was, was this little tingling sensation. And as the days went by, within a week, that sensation grew stronger in strength and severity to the point that within a week after that first tingle, I was in an ER trying to find out what was going on because the pain had started to grow in severity. Had you ever heard of this condition before? Did you have any idea what was going on? I had never heard of trigeminal neuralgia. This was the first time I had actually heard of it. In fact, while I was sitting in the ER, my wife was playing doctor on WebMD, trying to figure out what was going on with me. She was listening to my symptoms. She wasn't with me at the time. I was actually driving back from the airport because I had just come back from a trip and actually went to the ER because I was concerned that as these shocks were growing stronger, what if I had an instant accident or something happened to where I blacked out? And and so I decided that it was probably best to go to the ER and find out what was going on when I went home. So while I sat in the ER for the hour and a half that I was there, she was doing research, asking me about my symptoms, what was going on, what was happening. And during that time, she basically identified all the symptoms to be associated with trigeminal neuralgia. And when she said this, she said, I need you to look this up on your own. I don't want to tell you about this because it's not really good. And I think you have trigeminal neuralgia. So just look it up and just call me back after you've read it. What triggered her was, as you start looking up trigeminal neuralgia, in fact, if you start to Google that at any point, at somewhere in some search, you'll find it 
associated in the past as being nicknamed the suicide disease because the pain is so severe that people would rather end their life than continue with this pain that's associated with the disorder. As I'm reading all of this, and I'm, I'm seeing the worst pain a human can endure, it's not life-threatening, but it, it painted a very bleak picture for me. And I understood why at that point she didn't want to tell me this because, you know, I'm not to make things worse. I mean, I, I already struggle with anxiety. So when you tell somebody with anxiety, you have a very severe disorder, I probably would have reacted even more of, of a panic. And so my heart sunk. It just did. I, I, I didn't know what to think. And then immediately I went to the ER nurse and actually said, I'm going home. Because from what I read, there's nothing you can do to help me. I was so positive that I had trigeminal neuralgia that before I left, she grabbed the ER doc just to come out to speak to me. I told the ER doc what the symptoms were and what I was feeling. And the ER doc was like, I, I agree with you. I think this is what you're looking at and you need to follow up with your provider tomorrow if possible, which is what I did. What happened next? The next day I, I saw my provider. I explained to to him what was going on. I, I had mentioned how I was in the ER and, and the whole story and immediately set me up to have an MRI. And from my reading and research on trigeminal neuralgia, one of the best ways to identify that you have trigeminal neuralgia is an MRI because what they're looking for is the trigeminal nerve. I guess I should start with that. The trigeminal nerve runs along your face in three areas, along a little bit above your uh, your eye and your forehead area, along your cheek and along your jaw. And it carries sensations to your brain. And so what happens with trigeminal neuralgia is the trigeminal nerve, which is located in the brain, is in contact with an artery. And the artery creates a, a shock-like sensation, that, that connection. It's like putting two live, two live wires together. And that's what's creating the pain. And so the MRI is to determine if there is actual, actual contact between the trigeminal nerve and an artery. And in my case, there was, which confirmed it. Again, it was very surreal because everything happened so fast. I mean, I went from in one week getting ready to celebrate my 50th birthday thinking, okay, I'm going to make this next 50 years the best part of my life. I've already survived so much in the first 50 years to include having spent 26 years in the United States Coast Guard on active duty, hadn't seen anything and everything and bounced around 11 times in that time. I was just ready for this next chapter in my life to begin. And I had lost almost 20 pounds and I was just ready for this year to start. And then to find out that I had trigeminal neuralgia, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And I struggled just so hard as soon as I found out. What was the reaction of your doctor at the time? Because whilst it's true that this condition doesn't have a cure, quote unquote, it can be treated. It's interesting that you, you bring this up. So I'm a military retiree in a in terms of my health care, it's with the military. So the doctor I was seeing is a military doctor who, again, is not a specialist. He's not a neurologist. So I was referred to our local military care facility and I was referred to a neurologist there. The neurologist that I saw actually did not agree with the diagnosis, even though that the MRI said it was connecting the, the arteries with the nerve. They actually diagnosed me with a primary stabbing headache. 
which I, I totally disagreed with. Nothing made sense in terms of why I would even get this diagnosis. And so I went back to my primary doctor and, and told the doctor that I really didn't agree with this diagnosis. And the doctor was basically telling me to just, let's just give this some time. Let's see how this treatment works for the stabbing headache. And we'll go from there. Well, as we went from there, I didn't really feel heard. I, I, I didn't feel I had primary stabbing headache. And I continually would try and talk to my doctor about trying to get a second opinion, but received a lot of pushback in terms of wanting to just stay the course, keep seeing this neurologist that was at this uh, Army Medical Center, and just give it more time. But when you're being electrocuted and you're in a lot of pain, and you know that what you've been told, you just know in your heart that that's not it, that I need help now. And you're kind of standing in the way of me receiving the treatment that I deserve. I decided to leave my, my military health insurance and I signed up with my work health insurance and saw a different doctor. I saw a different neurologist who then did diagnose me with trigeminal neuralgia and then prescribed me carpazamine. And started treatment with that. And for the most part, it has helped. And so there are surgical options that I could have. I have declined them at the moment because the way I see surgery is, is I would have to be in excruciating pain all the time for me to want to have brain surgery and risk anything that could happen. I mean, it is brain surgery. So I, I just felt that at least for right now, I'm going to just try and treat this with medication. And if I have to, I'll look at brain surgery in the future. Did you have any inkling why the first neurologist was so adamant that they were not going to even consider the diagnosis that you very reasonably had found online? You know, it's funny. I know you're a doctor, and maybe you might relate to this in some ways of having had experiences with, you know, in your profession, but this was a resident who felt, I'm absolutely positive. This is what it is. I've just come out of med school. I have the latest and greatest in information. Obviously, I know what I'm talking about. Well, the time that you've spent online is nothing compared to the time I have spent in medical school. Obviously, I'm the professional. I know what's going on with you. This person was very arrogant, very dismissive. My wife was actually in the appointment with me. And she would bring things up to say, but what about this or what about that? This doesn't seem to make any sense. And and again, just very dismissive, which right off the bat just made me feel like I'm going to have to advocate for myself much harder than what's happening right now, because I couldn't just accept this diagnosis. It just made no sense to me. And I did listen to my primary care doctor. I did stay with this neurologist for three months and, and was treated with different medications. I think I was on three different types of medications. Again, for headache, not for trigeminal neuralgia. And the medications I was prescribed did not relieve any of the, the pain I was having. And if anything, it made things worse because the medication made me drowsy. It made me dizzy. I just was very loopy and, and couldn't think properly. I had to get better because I was in so much pain and it was already affecting my life in just a short period of time from February to May. By that point, I had already had sunk into this deep depression because of the pain I was going through, because of the frustration that I was feeling in terms of the treatment I was receiving and beginning to lose hope that I would even have anybody who would be able to help me. 
So I'm thinking, you know, here's a man who comes in with these severe headaches, severe facial pain, and he has this diagnosis at the back of his mind, which to me sounded plausible. But in your mind as a doctor, you're thinking, oh no, this is, this is something else. But would it have done any harm? Did you get any impression that it would do you any harm for him to say, okay, I'll go with you for a period of time and let's treat this as trigeminal neuralgia. But in my mind, I think this is something else. And then we can revisit that. Would that have been a more reasonable approach from your perspective? Absolutely. I think as a patient, what we would want from any doctor is to be heard. I have a lot of respect for doctors. I understand that the, the education, the work, everything that doctors have to go through to get to the point to where they are, where they're treating people. It is an amazing amount of work and effort and dedication to care for people. And so I find that in many cases, and I, and I think this was probably one of the, you know, in this situation, because this is a military doctor who is at an army facility, one of the largest in the nation, where basically they do not have the time to dedicate to patients. Because it's, it's, I need to see this sergeant. I need to see this person. I need to see this soldier. I need to see this airman. Tell me what you've got. What's going on? It's almost like a triage in some ways. And I think that that was the situation I was in, that this particular doctor, this neurologist just didn't want to really take the time. And maybe it was a combination of, of being rushed and having to see numerous clients and patients. I don't know. I think that had they listened to me, had they just even looked at the MRI, which clearly said the trigeminal nerve was in contact with an artery, I, I just don't understand how you could come up with something else because that's the telltale sign of trigeminal neuralgia is having that artery in contact with the trigeminal nerve. So yes, it, it would have made a world of difference. I know I probably would not have felt so hopeless because when you're not hurt, when you feel you're not getting care, when you're receiving medications that aren't helping you, it just takes you further down this rabbit hole of depression because you just feel like no one's listening, no one's helping. And I was so desperate for someone to just throw a rope and save me. And I wasn't getting that. How soon after you started the treatment for trigeminal neuralgia did you experience some relief from what sounded like an awful pain? It was three to four months of being on the medication, I had to start off at lower dosages, 100 milligrams, and then up to 200, then from 200 to 400, and then up to 600, and, and maxed out at 800. I found that at 800, I was receiving very little pain. But what I was getting was stammered speech, extreme dizziness. I just was so out of it. I didn't feel pain, but I wasn't myself. And I was struggling to even perform my job because of the medication. Eventually, and, and this is not uncommon for people who have trigeminal neuralgia, it went away. For whatever reason, the pain just went away. And I felt like I was back to being me again. And to be perfectly honest with you, I thought, well, maybe I don't have trigeminal neuralgia. Maybe it's gone. And began to look at my life as having this, this second chance. because. I'm somebody who loves to, to, to speak. I do competitive storytelling. I love to sing karaoke. I love to do things. I always wanted to be a motivational speaker. I love music. I love all sorts of things. And 
I thought I'd lost all of that when I was in, in the pain that I was having with trigeminal neuralgia. And then for it to suddenly go away and just, I felt like myself again. I told myself, I've been given a second chance that this is my opportunity to do all the things I ever wanted to do. Because in my mind, I thought it was gone. I felt cured and, and began to do that, began looking at how to take this renewed look at my life and do something different with it. Unfortunately, the pain did come back. And I've now had periods of remission that last anywhere from two weeks to the longest six months. Since the diagnosis was made, you've been a champion for this cause and you've been the spokesperson for people with trigeminal neuralgia. In that time, you'll have heard many stories from people who've had this condition. Are the stories similar? Yes. The people that I've heard from have shared a lot of different things in terms of what their experiences are with trigeminal neuralgia. And to be perfectly honest with you, there are cases that are far worse than mine. There are people that have it on both sides of their face. So in my case, I only have trigeminal neuralgia on my right side. So the pain only affects one side of my face, whereas in some cases, it is on both sides. And in other cases, the pain is nonstop. And I'm part of a docuseries that's called Unfixed. And there's another person that is on the, the program. She has trigeminal neuralgia, and she's actually had the brain surgery twice. I have not had to endure her pain. I have not had to endure surgery. It affects people in different ways. And in fact, even in my case, when I go into this period of remission, when it goes away, when it comes back, the pain is never the same. Sometimes the location is not even the same. Sometimes it affects my, my jaw when I chew. Sometimes it's up in the forehead. It is so odd how every time it comes back, it has yet to be the exact same type of pain. So I find that people who have trigeminal neuralgia struggle in many different ways because there are people like myself that may get a break from it. There's others who are just in agonizing pain all the time. And like I said, there's other people that have it on both sides of their face. And I'm just fortunate that it's on only on one side for me. And in terms of the diagnostic odyssey, if we put it that way, the point from which you're presenting at the ER or at your primary care physician's office through to the point where somebody says, this is trigeminal neuralgia, we can do something about it, we can help you in some way. What's that been like for people? Does it vary or does it tend to have a pretty typical course? I think for the most part, it seems to be about the same type of course. It's interesting because I have a cousin who was just diagnosed with it two months ago. And because she knows that I have trigeminal neuralgia, the first thing she did was contacted me. And she started saying, I'm having this pain. It's in my jaw. Every time I chew, it's excruciating. I don't know what's going on with me. I don't know what to do. And I think for me, I was so thankful that I was able to talk to her and tell her what to do. Because again, I had never heard of trigeminal neuralgia. I had no idea what I was in for. I had no idea what she needed to do to even confirm a diagnosis like that. And so for her to be able to, for me to share with her my experience, okay, make sure you see a neurologist, make sure you have an MRI, make sure that the medication that they're giving you, they started from a lower dosage to a higher dosage. About a month and a half went by for her and they did diagnose her with trigeminal neuralgia. 
And for the most part, I think, at least I'd like to think that I was able to help her navigate that much better because same time, again, like I said, when I was first diagnosed, I knew no one. I mean, to me, it was almost a death sentence when I received it because I was so full of panic and full of fear of what was happening to me. She didn't go through that. I mean, yes, she was not happy and she did struggle with pain. But because I was there to, to kind of help her out, to lead her, to guide her, to mentor her, I know that it helped her transition far better than what I went. It's fabulous that she had you playing that role for her. Now, in that four years since you were diagnosed, I know that you've gone on to do many more things to support people with this condition. Can you talk a little bit about that? What have you been doing? I did touch on when I went into this period of permission, I wanted to just do all the things I wanted to do in life. So one of the first things I did was I wanted to tell my story. I wanted to share this with a, a, a group of people to help them. And here in Washington State, we have what they call a lean transformation conference. Lean is a, is a process improvement type of, of strategy. And the state has a conference. So it's a very large conference. And I was convinced by a, a mentor of mine to apply to be a speaker. And I did. And what I applied for was how to overcome the fear of the unknown was the theme of my story. And I tied it to my experiences with trigeminal neuralgia. I was selected. And in 2019, I did a somewhat of a TED Talk, so to speak, a 25-minute session where I shared my experiences and what I learned from that. It was amazing. It was a, a wonderful opportunity for me to get to share this story. And, and at the end, to have people come up to me and spend time hearing their stories. And, oh, my God, I, I know somebody who had it. And you're, you're so right on. And, oh, it was so powerful. And all the, different feed, you know, all the different types of feedback I received, it made me feel so good inside to know that I felt like I reached out to people. What I found more fascinating about this was in the audience was somebody who knew Kimberly Warner. And Kimberly Warner is a director in, in Oregon, in the Portland area. And at the time, she was filming a documentary called Unfixed. And I was told to get a hold of her because after hearing my story, they thought I'd be a perfect candidate for her film because she was getting ready to do a documentary on people who are struggling with various disorders. This led me to contacting Kimberly. Kimberly interviewed me. She immediately was definitely wanting to have me on, on her program. And for the last two years, I have been working with Kimberly on a variety of projects. One, the Un Unfixed docuseries. And now we're working on a feature film called Why We Matter. And, and basically, we're looking at 20 individuals who are struggling with a, a variety of diagnoses. And rather than look at people who have diagnosis and feel pity for them or feel like, oh, it's such a terrible thing to happen. We are trying to show ourselves as people who are thriving with our diagnoses. The things that we're able to do, the images that we can portray to people, the way we can help people, that's been the biggest change in my life, has been telling my story through her camera lens. And I can't thank her enough for the opportunity she gave me. As an aside, Kimberly Warner is a good friend of the Health Design Podcast and the Journal of Health Design. We are 
proud and honored to be associated with Unfixed and through Unfixed with all of her amazing people that she has been showcasing. We are all broken in some way, and being broken doesn't mean that we don't have so much to offer the world as as you are doing. I'm still fascinated by the early part of your journey where you're presenting the diagnosis to somebody and you're saying, this is what I think is the matter, is potentially something else as well in your professional opinion. However, this is how you could help me by acknowledging that this could be what is the matter with me. And I'm very keen to understand that fully because there's great wisdom in what you say there, that had that been reflected back to you, and had that been acknowledged, regardless of what the diagnosis was, your steps in that first few months might have been a lot less faltering and a lot more confident, and your comfort levels would have been higher. Is there something that we can learn from that as doctors, as as people with these conditions, that you feel was key to getting those two people in that room to understand one another? So that's a very wonderful question because I believe that the doctor-patient relationship is a very crucial one. There has to be trust between the doctor and the patient. You need to be heard as a patient. And as a, as a doctor, you need to listen to what needs to be said. There's so much training that doctors receive in medical school, but maybe having that ability to listen passionately to have empathy, to understand fully what their patient is going through. We as patients are far more than just diagnosis. We're people who are struggling in our own ways, going through our own things. And to put your, to kind of give you this mindset of, of what it was like, I had gone through a deep depression while I was going through all of this. I had felt that I had lost a good part of my life. I, I had already convinced myself that my my life for as long as I was going to live it was going to be miserable. I just was so, so down and, and struggling with depression that had I had seen a doctor, had somebody listened to me, had somebody given me hope, I know that I would have pulled out of that depression much sooner than what I did. And when I look at that time frame that I had, of that period of depression that it affected myself, but it also affected my family that had the right doctor been there, my course of, of action and my mindset would have been thoroughly different. And that's the power that a doctor can have on a person's life when they really listen to what's going on. The, the doctor could have taken that diagnosis or, or not. As you said, they could have said, you know what, let's, let's play with this. Let's see if that's it. I might think it's this, but at least you've acknowledged, at least you've heard what the patient is saying. And I cannot stress this enough. That is crucial. I trained in the 1980s when it would have been remarkable had somebody walked into the office with a large textbook and said, "Uh, this is a diagnostic conundrum. And here is one potential answer. And look, the picture fits because there's this pain is brought on by the slightest touch in this area. This is clearly a neuralgia and potentially it's a trigeminal neuralgia because of the distribution of the pain, etc. I would have been astonished. I would have wondered whether they had a medical degree. Since 2000, that is a lot less remarkable because 
patients and their families have access to vast amounts of knowledge. There's unlimited amount of knowledge out there. And for someone to come along and say, I can show you the diagnosis on my phone. Look, here it is. Along with the anatomy, the physiology, and potentially the treatment of this condition clearly outlined in this, on this phone. That is a lot less remarkable. What is more remarkable, it seems, is our ability, and what hasn't changed, is our ability to show empathy, is to make eye contact, is to angle ourselves to face the patient, and to not interrupt from time to time, and to hear the context in which somebody is presenting. So whilst you've been very generous in saying doctors have a lot of training, etc., I think the so has so have patients, and they have a lot more knowledge and intuition than we may be prepared to give them credit for. And that seems to be a key message that's coming out of our conversation. So I reflect that back to you and say, do you think that in this day and age, it should be more like a partnership and a lot less like you're the expert and I'm coming for your technical expertise more than your sympathy or your empathy? Absolutely. I think that they're actually, again, having not attended medical school and not knowing all that is taught, there definitely needs to be attention spent on dealing with patients, on listening to patients. They should be sitting there listening to you attentively, not writing notes, not looking at something else. Just you should be the focus. As, as, as a patient, I can't tell you what it's like to have a doctor just sit across from me, ask me, Okay, what's going on? What's happening? How's this made you feel? How's this affected you? It's been wonderful to have a, a neurologist now that does that and stays on top of things and, and always keeps in touch with me, wants to know how I'm doing. Hey, I haven't seen you recently. Let's let's do some lab works on you. Let, let's make sure things are good. Let's keep up with everything. Uh, this medication can can cause some some severe side effects. We want to make sure you're good. We want to make sure you're okay. This person is a part of my life. This person is involved with every aspect of my medical care, has listened to every concern, has shared just anything and everything that they can to ensure that I receive the best treatment and has treated me in a way almost as an equal. Because we're both having a conversation. I'm feeling this and it could be this. Or if I ask a question, I may follow that question with, and as I've been doing some research, I'm wondering if it might be associated to this. And then that starts a dialogue that we will then have. And so that's an interesting perspective. I didn't think about that. Or yes, or no, or whatever it is. Like I said, we are so much more than just a diagnosis on a person or a number, or maybe to some people, even a paycheck. I mean, we're somebody who is turning to you as a physician. You have the power to not only heal us physically, but mentally, emotionally. The, the impact is so great. And I think that for a long time, that, that aspect of the care that doctors provided wasn't there. A lot of focus on different things, even depression for that matter. I mean, there's a lot of mental health aspects that in some way should also be kind of taught because of the fact that they need to understand that when somebody is diagnosed with something, it's going to like trigger the stages of grief in some cases. And they need to be able to prepare their patient to let them know, hey, you know, you need to understand that while you go through this, you may find 
a sense of loss. You may find denial. You may find yourself being angry. This is all normal because no one did that. I didn't realize I was in the stages of grief until I spoke to my wife, who's a therapist, and she flat out said, you're in the stages of grief. You're grieving your life. Nobody was there to to guide me. I, I struggled so hard because of the fact that I did not have a doctor that took the time to listen to me and give me the opportunity to have my voice heard. And yet, as a testament to the power of the human spirit, here you are to tell the story and to share those experiences with us. You nailed it in that last segment of our conversation. There's nothing more I could possibly add to what you've said. Renee, it's been an honor speaking with you. You are generous and you've been extraordinarily kind, not just to yourself, but also to the people who've struggled, frankly, to help you through this journey. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Moyes. The Health Design Podcast, sponsored by the Patient and Physician Advocacy Alliance. Visit us at the journal of healthdesign.com.